And that's what the people of Israel looked for all those years. They waited for the coming of the Messiah. And, and the promise was given in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be uh, in the Lord. And Paul refers to this same passage in the New Testament to let us know that, yes, indeed, Christ is the fulfillment of that promise of a coming Messiah when he quotes from uh, that, that very same passage in Isaiah. It says this in verse uh, Romans 15, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And so based on that fulfillment, the fulfillment of the promise of the coming Messiah, Paul then gives them this blessing, which is for us as well. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so again, that's, that's, that's what Paul's been talking about in Romans already. I mean, the hope that we have is in Christ. The only hope that we have is in Christ. Our confident expectation is him. And so with that in mind this morning, let's bow our heads for prayer as we pray together during this time of pastoral prayer where I pray for you. I ask you to pray for me and one another. But together, let's all approach God's throne asking his grace upon us this morning that he'll open our eyes that we see the promise of his coming. Let's pray together. Our Father, we gather before you this morning. We're grateful for your promises. In a world that's full of half-truths and broken promises, Father, it's a blessing to know that you cannot lie. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your promises never fail. And so you promised nearly 4,000 years ago that you would send a Messiah. And for the past, uh, and for 2,000 years, the world waited for that in hope of that coming. And Father, we on this side look back and see that he came. And now we wait in joyful and hopeful expectation for his second return. And Father, we can look for that in faith. We can, we can trust that because you've already kept your promise. Jesus Christ lived. He split time in half. Your promise has been fulfilled. And now we await that second coming. So Father, may we be faithful uh, during this time. Uh, strengthen us by your spirit and your word as we wait for the second coming. Let us be faithful, Father, even amidst the pain and the suffering. Father, many today are hurting. We thank you for Diane Hulesman, who's back today, but she is still hurting. Uh, Father, continue to give her grace and strength as she heals. Be with the many who are sick and, and overcoming different viruses and, and colds and, and flus. Father, we especially pray for Henry Armstrong as he's away uh, down south, and he's in a hospital right now with the flu. We pray, Father, you give him strength and healing and grace and let him know that his church loves him and are, are praying for him. Now, Father, we pray especially for this time as we've gathered together that you bless this time, that we will put aside everything else in our minds right now because you and you alone are worthy of all of our attention, all of our praise. And all of our thoughts, Father, may you change us by your word. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. The Word of God. Thanks for that clarification. Our sermon text this morning is taken from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6, and also Jeremiah chapter 33, 12 through 18. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste without man or beast, in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negeb, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah. Flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause right, a righteousness, righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make a sacrifice forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate this season of Thanksgiving, I just thank you for the many, many blessings that you shower upon us. Lord, I thank you so much for the freedom that we have, that we can gather here together to worship you. Lord, I thank you so much that Diane Hulesman is here with us today. It's just so good to see her. And I just pray, Lord, that you will just uh, continue to bless and heal her completely. Uh, I just um, thank you, Lord, for that we could all gather here and that we can love and encourage one another. Lord, I want to thank you for John. I thank you for his passion for your word and for your church. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will be upon him as he brings us this message of hope. Lord, and I just pray that you will just um, permeate our hearts with, with the, the message of hope that you are preparing us as the bride of Christ and that we shall gather together with him as he returns in glory. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you. Uh, my name is John McNamee. I'm one of the elders here. And it's my joy and honor uh, to um, read the word and, and preach the word this morning. Um, the last couple of weeks, we have been in Romans chapter 5, which has been about hope. 
And I don't know if it's been made clear to you yet, but today we are going to talk about hope. <laughs> um, even in that first sermon, Greg, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, so Romans chapter 5, it talks about hope, and, and we, we learned about that. And so we're going to focus on that today. And of course, not just any hope. We're going we're gonna to focus on Christian hope, biblical hope, which is different um, than maybe what the world would have to offer us. We certainly live in times where many experience hopelessness. I'm not going to uh, bombard you with endless statistics. Uh, it's plain enough for all of us to see uh, this, that the state of our mental health in this country, as well as the world, is increasingly fragile. Anxiety, depression, and all other ailments are on the rise. No age group is immune, but it does definitely seem that the youth and young adults are especially at risk. And is it any wonder? Society at large is determined to remove any ties to anything that looks like a Judeo-Christian ethic and let alone a biblical worldview. Truth, in the sense of it being absolute, is completely disregarded. One's emotions are elevated to undue importance. And the only truth that matters is if someone is being true to themselves. I'm not going to go into the specifics. I refuse to do that. But what was once in out-of-way, obscure nightclubs is paraded in front of general audiences, <clears throat> including young children. We are literally living in a Romans 1 world in which we as a society are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we are not immune to this. We are swimming in that water. Uh, not only is our societal morality at an all-time low, we are in constant worry about the next pandemic, the next big war, the next election, economic uncertainty, inflation, housing market, political climate. We have constant generational and cultural tensions, people becoming more and more unhinged, willing to enact violence with no restraint. We could no doubt go on and on. This is there is that age-old question, though, right? Um, are a society the cause or are individuals the cause? You know, who's to blame here? Well, it certainly is, I see it as a downward cycle, one causing the other, but the root of it is our rebellion against God. Um, <clears throat> and that's what Romans 1 tells us. It says that, it is humanity's rebellion against God, humanity's refusal to acknowledge God. It all does seem kind of hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost like, man, don't you wish, don't you wish that someone could just uh, come and set it all straight? 
Doesn't, don't you wish that someone would come and just make everything right? Uh, someone who could somehow get people to just act decently? Uh, sometimes people think that the next great president is going to be that person. Well, I'm here to uh, burst your bubble on that idea. <laughs> That's not true, okay? <laughs> we need hope. Uh, we look for hope nearly anywhere we can. We place our hope in our jobs, our positions, our political leaders, our, our houses, our families, our possessions, our personalities, our relationships, our youthfulness, or anything that makes us look younger. We place our hope in our performance, our talents, our skills, our spouses, our children, our parents, our teachers, our grades, our scholarships. If we actually bother to think of the life to come, we place our hope in our behavior, how good we are, and if we're not that good, we place our hope in religious activities that can somehow make up the difference. We place our hope in a God that we've made up, not the God of the Bible. We make him to be an unjust God who will leave all of our wrongs unaccounted for, as if that were possible. We place our hope in anything that promises a sense of security, a sense of betterment, a sense of longevity, a sense of stability, a sense of belonging, a sense of being loved, anything but the one thing that is true and offers eternal hope. So we're going to talk about hope, but we need to be careful because hope in what? Or perhaps another better way to say it is hope from what? We have loneliness, addictions, we have disappointments, we have hurts, we have all those things going on. But as we sang today, Christ is our hope. He is much bigger than our day-to-day -day issues. And I don't want to diminish on the real lifelong struggles that we all have. I don't want to downplay that. But Christ is bigger than that. And so we want to be clear that when we are talking about hope, that it is held in opposition to the state of being without hope. We are not the first generation to find ourselves in this situation. In fact, hopelessness has been the human experience since Genesis 3 onward. When sin separated us from God, in and of ourselves we have no hope. This is what Ephesians 2.12 tells us. It says, remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God, in the world. Everyone who is separated from Christ, which is everyone who is not in Christ, has no hope and is without God. If you are not in Christ, then what are you in? As we're studying Romans, when we're coming up in the second half of Romans chapter 5, we will learn. It is clear the Bible shows us that we are all either in Christ or we are in Adam. Every single one of us has an inheritance coming to us. Your inheritance is either with mankind, and that's condemnation, it's eternal death, or your inheritance is with Christ, justification, righteousness, and eternal life. As we talk about hope, another distinction that we need to talk about or might be helpful is the difference between faith and hope. The difference between biblical faith and biblical hope. And 
they are very closely related. Uh, Christian faith is a personal thing. Now, I don't mean it's a personal thing in the sense that it's private to you, but your faith is in a person. We don't place our faith in doctrines or theories or systems or religions. We place our faith in God and his trustworthiness. We place our faith in Jesus Christ, who who he is, and his ability to accomplish our salvation. So faith for us, it's it's backward-looking. It's looking back at what Christ has done. It's present-day looking. It's resting in God's providence today. But when we start talking about a future-looking faith, that's when we're talking about hope. Things to come. Romans 8 says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We hope for what we do not see, and we wait for it with patience. So my challenge to you today as we're going to read God's word is that you consider the hope that you are holding to. How big, how certain is your hope? Is your hope in Christ and his promises? We need hope. Christ is our only hope. And the hope in Christ, with that hope, we are then free to live as hopeful people. So as I mentioned before, we are not that first generation to experience hopelessness. And here in this passage this morning, we're jumping into the middle of a story. We're jumping in, I would say, close to, if not the most hopeless situation that Israel finds themselves in. This is around 600 BC. It's the last days of Israel's divided kingdom. The 10 tribes of Israel, of the northern kingdom, they've already been taken to Assyria with no hope of ever returning. There's two tribes left in Judah, Benjamin and Judah, and they are in a precarious situation. They have the Egyptians to the south. They have the Babylonians to the east. Each are making moves to expand their dominion. And after a string of evil kings who led Judah into idolatry and all kinds of evil, they had maybe the last little chance of a hope and a good king Josiah. But in the end, he failed and fell to the Egyptians. Each of his three sons, one by one, had a chance at the throne, and and even one of his grandsons, before God cut them off. This was, uh, Josiah's grandson was Jeconiah. God said, this was the rightful heir. He was of the line of David. And God said, write him down as childless. None of his offspring shall succeed on the throne of David and rule again in Judah. In the days to follow, Jerusalem was completely destroyed, the temple destroyed, and most all of its inhabitants are stripped from their homes and taken to Babylon. The hope that the Jews had was based on their temple and the Davidic king, and now both are gone. The temple utterly destroyed, the line of David for all intents and purposes, chopped down to a stump. Now, what are they supposed to think? The unimaginable had happened. 
What they had placed their hope in was gone, and now the Jews were completely and utterly without hope. Believe it or not, it took all of this, the total destruction, to convince most of Judah that they were, in fact, without hope. Jeremiah wasn't the only voice of the day. All along, rather than listen to Jeremiah and God's word, the people would listen to others who gave false hope. Senses of um, if they were smart enough, or if they made the right moves, if they formed the right alliances, they would be able to overcome and fight off the Babylonians. All in denial of God's word. It seems like everything that this world has to offer is designed to give us a false sense of hope. Anything to keep us from realizing that we are, in fact, without actual hope. The things that the world plays off, our needs, these things that the world offers us are only temporary. They're fixes, but temporary fixes. We are in need of real hope, a hope that outweighs this momentary life, these momentary afflictions. So we thank God that he does open our eyes to our sense, to the reality that without him, we have no hope. And so this brings us to our text today, Jeremiah 23, uh, 1 through 4, which begins with a curse against the shepherds. We read, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And so we can see that these are not actual physical shepherds that are being talked about here, right? Physical shepherds of, of sheep and livestock. These are talking about shepherds of God's flock. And God says, this is concerning the shepherds who are supposed to care for my people. You have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. This even further removes the hope of the people because now not only is their temple gone, not only is the, their king gone, but the leaders that they had, the priests, the prophets, those two were being removed from them. No leadership, just being removed from them. Um, the shepherds whom they had placed their trust in were going to be taken away. But in verse 3, the prophecy takes a turn for the better, a glimmer of hope. It says, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Finally, some good news. But not without a little clue in there, a little insight to who is really in control there. Notice it says, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. Brothers and sisters, we may never know all the reasons for why God allows things to happen, but we can take unshakable assurance in our sovereign God that nothing is outside of his control, nothing escapes his knowledge, nothing takes him by surprise, not a single thought, concern, prayer, or tear goes unnoticed. This good news continues in verse 4. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, Old Testament prophecy is interesting because God is painting a picture of his redemption story. He's using prophecy to tell them what's going to happen. He's, he's painting this beautiful story, a beautiful picture. And many times these prophecies 
have a series of fulfillments. So theologians like to talk about, they talk about it as though it's a, uh, the prophetic telescope. And they mention that, I mean, Old Testament prophecy has no qualms jumping from one age to the next age, and it's all kind of one prophecy. And so it talks about, like, it's like as though someone were looking through a telescope, they're looking at a, a mountainscape, various mountains, and, and while those mountains might be very far from each other, in the telescope, they all just kind of seem to be right next to each other. And so the three main horizons or mountains that you see in Old Testament prophecy is the age of that day, that there usually is going to be a fulfillment that happens during that time. But there's also going to be a fulfillment at the first advent when Jesus came, and then there will be the final and ultimate fulfillment at the end of the age. And so when we read here and it says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, the immediate context is that the people are about to be exiled to Babylon, but after 70 years, they will be brought back to Jerusalem under the shepherding of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. These are great men of faith who God used greatly to lead his people and teach them his word. But this promise, it, it reverbs through the ages to come with the apostles and ultimately the shepherds that God has provided and continues to provide to his church in the present age. And we thank God for his promise to his church. In Ephesians 4, it says that he gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. But as much as we may cherish the shepherds that God has provides to his people, whether that's our modern-day pastors or the rulers of ancient Israel, the priests and the kings, as much as we may place our hope in them, it is an inferior hope. God knows that. And so he continues his good news, speaking through Jeremiah about a specific shepherd, a shepherd that he is going to provide. These current shepherds of that day are cursed. Future shepherds are promised. And then eclipsing them is an even greater promise. Jeremiah 23, 5-6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord. Yahweh is our righteousness. Before we look at this prophecy, we're going to jump to chapter 33, where this prophecy is repeated almost verbatim. So let's read through that one more time. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shepela, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks again shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I have made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Here is hope on full display. A Messiah 
is promised. Put your hope in him. Behold, this is important. The days are coming, not immediately, not anytime soon, but they are coming when I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. For David. Not only is God faithful to his covenant promises to Israel, but God will be faithful to his specific covenant made with David that he would raise up a righteous branch from David. Isaiah and other prophets, Greg was speaking about earlier, Isaiah and other prophets, they use that same theme, the righteous branch. Isaiah prophesied that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The Davidic line had been cut down to a stump. Jeconiah counted as childless, but God would cause a branch which comes from the root of this stump to bear fruit. Indeed, we are told in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus came through the line of Jeconiah, the son of Josiah. The prophecy in Jeremiah doesn't tell us exactly when this Messiah would come, but it's always kind of struck me as interesting, this passage here, that in chapter 33, we learn that this is in the context of a time when there is relative peace, when there are shepherds keeping their flocks in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah. In those days, a righteous branch will spring up for David. Is it any surprise that Jesus, when Jesus was born, how God sent his angels to announce it to shepherds who were keeping their flock? I don't have any big theological point there. It's just kind of cool, isn't it? <laughs> but this righteous branch, he will reign as king. He will deal wisely and execute true justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Now let's just pause for a second here and think about how would the Jews uh, of Jeremiah's day, how would they receive this good news? They are on the brink of total annihilation. The kings and priests, they're wicked. Babylon has come, completely destroyed the city, has taken them all away. I have to imagine that for some, for many, this good news that Jeremiah uh, gave to them, it, it didn't really spark much hope. It was, it was prophesied that they would remain in Babylon for 70 years. Most all of them were not coming back. But here is good news given by God for their benefit, for their hope. A Savior is coming. A King is coming. This is your hope. So here we are. We're at a time with no hope. God proclaims to his people that he will gather the remnant Provide for them a shepherd, a righteous branch from the stump of David. This is the greater shepherd. This is the one in whom we can have real hope. He will reign as king. He will deal wisely. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. This promised Messiah, he is righteous. He is eternal. He will sit on the throne forever. And yet, he is from the line of David. He is human. He's truly God, truly man. This is what is so wonderful about the incarnation. One whom we can place our complete and utter trust in. One we can stake our entire life on. He is our king. Not just any king. A king who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
we all long for justice, right? I mean, when you have kids, you begin to realize that sense of justice is just innate. They know when to say, not fair. They know. They have a sense of justice and what is fair. But, right, we're all, we all have a skewed form of justice, a sin-infested form of justice, a justice that serves us. That's the kind of justice that we have. Um, and yet, that this, um, if we could be honest with ourselves, right, if we could, if we could be honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that when Christ executes justice, it should be taken out on us. We should be on the receiving end of his executing justice. But what makes the Messiah's first advent so glorious is because in his inauguration of his kingdom, he, as king, laid down his life for his kingdom. The judgment was exercised. It was laid on him. Thereby, justice was served. The sins of his people, our sins, laid on him and atoned for. But it doesn't end there. These two prophecies, they're nearly identical, but there is one significant difference. In chapter 23, we learn that the name of this Messiah is the Lord, Yahweh, is our righteousness. But in chapter 33, we learn that, Je- uh, that Jerusalem, or prophetically speaking, God's people, is given this name. In verse 16, in those days, Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Not only does the king lay down his life for his people, he gives them his name. The bride of Christ is so closely united with Christ that we are his body. We are called by his name. And that name is, the Lord is our righteousness. We do not somehow earn righteousness. We do not somehow possess it in our nature. It is given to us when he becomes our Savior and our King. This is the one whom we place our trust in. By faith, we receive the blessings of his work for us. Our biggest need to be reconciled to God is found in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. And yet, we are still here in this life, in our daily and lifelong struggles. But now we have hope. We have hope eternal because we have been brought into his kingdom. And just like the Jews in exile, just like they had a hope in the advent of their king, we too have hope in the advent of our king. He is coming again. We don't know when that will be. For the Jews, it was another 600 years from these prophecies before the the first advent. That's not the point. Our hope in him is an eternal hope. Whether he comes in our time or not, it's irrelevant. Either way, we will be there with him at the resurrection of the dead when we will forever be in his presence, fully experiencing eternal and everlasting joy and peace and love. Now, as we wait for him, we have it so much better 
than they did. The first advent did happen, and we are able to know that he did come, that Christ came, that he suffered, that he died, was buried, that he rose again. We know these things. We receive all of the benefits of that first advent, and we have his word and his spirit freely given to us. We are in a much better situation than the Jews were at that time. But how does hope in Christ, how does our hope in him and the future that he has for us affect our day-to-day life right now? So you can go in two ways here. You can focus exclusively on this life. You can think that hope in Christ means that you can have it all in this life. You can have all that that this life has to offer, right? That's one way that people go with this. They say, Christ brings hope. I have it all here. Um, People are often sold on a false idea of what a life in Christ is actually all about. Desperate for hope, they hear that if they put their trust in Christ, that everything will be all right. Well, that's true. But how do you understand it? Right? Um, How you understand it can have devastating ramifications. You mean if I put my trust in Jesus, I won't lose my job? If I put my trust in Jesus, my spouse will finally treat me right? If I put my trust in Jesus, will I finally get out of debt? The Bible is clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. It says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There is much more to our hope in Christ than in this life only. But there's another way in which we can mistakenly misunderstand um, the hope that we have in Christ. And that is to exclusively think that the hope he offers is only for the life to come. And that it has no bearing on our life today. Thoughts like, well, that's all well and good, okay. Uh, Christ, he's my savior. He's gonna take care of me in the life to come. But here on this earth, well, I will have to take care of myself. My happiness is up to me. And so we continue to look for hope in our jobs and our investments, retirement accounts, relationships, whatever. It may be anything but Christ. Or we say, okay, this is a deferred joy, right? The hope that he offers is for the next life, and my life will just be a life of meaningless suffering. But no, our hope in Christ, our hope-filled, eternal perspective gives us meaning in our suffering. It gives us joy and peace as we wait. Paul Tripp summarizes it this way. He says, the message is consistent. God is not working to deliver to you your personal definition of happiness. If you're on that agenda page, you are going to be disappointed with God and you are going to wonder if he loves you. God is after something better, your holiness. That is the final completion of his redemptive work in you which includes deep and abiding happiness in him. The difficulties you face are not in the way of God's plan. They do not show the failure of God's plan, and they are not signs he has turned his back on you. No, those tough moments are a sure sign of the zeal of his redemptive love. 
I remember, it may have been six years ago or more, um, I was at a conference, and many of the speakers there, they were reminiscing about the great teacher, R.C. Sproul. One of the things that stood out as they spoke about him was his constant sense of peace and hope and joy, despite his circumstances. As you listen to Sproul, you can't help but just, it, it just comes out of him. And I found myself thinking at the time, this might come as a surprise to you, I found myself thinking, I wish I could be like that. <laughs> I wish I could have that joy. Uh, almost envious. But it was reminded to us that this was not his natural disposition, that this was how the Holy Spirit had continued to work on him in his lifelong journey of patiently waiting, living in the light of the hope that he had in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we have a hope-filled, eternal mindset, longing for that day, longing to be with Christ, we are then free to make the most of the lows and the highs in our lives. All of it has meaning. All of it is preparing for us the life to come. It doesn't mean that we live in denial of these real pains, but we can experience them in the right perspective one that is captivated by the beauty of Christ. That's my challenge for you all. Adopt that mindset. Think about that. Live your life each day in the light of the day you will be with Christ one day. Think about that. Encourage yourself by being with other people who have that eternal mindset. I don't know if you all are aware, but the best place to sit in church is probably right up here or right up here. I was doing that too. Normally I'm back there, but today, man, just hearing the voices of God's people sing, very encouraging, very encouraging. The prophet that Jeremiah, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, when he was lamenting the great loss of Jerusalem and the, and the temple, he wrote in Lamentations 3, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He's not in denial. He knows he has real hurts, real things going on there. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. 
Therefore, I will hope in him. As we await the second advent of our king, when he will reign and execute justice and righteousness, when we will dwell eternally secure in his kingdom, let us wait for it with patience. Let us have hope-filled lives, encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, our only hope is found in you and in Christ who you have uh, brought to this earth, that you have given him um, to, to be a ransom for us, to, to live the life we could not live in total obedience to your commands, to lay down his obedient life as a pleasing and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of your people. Our hope is in, is in you. We long for the day when we can eternally be in your presence. Then we are removed from the presence of sin. We are made to be white as snow, ever to love you, sing your praises, to be eternally satisfied with hope and peace and love and joy. We long for that day. But help us to not long or live our lives here in vain, but to live in light of that. Help us to encourage one another and to spread the hope that you have provided to all those around us. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.